Welcome to the Q Podcast Show, where we discuss ideas, innovations, and thought leadership in frontier areas such as AI, machine learning, and finance. In today's session, we are joined by Yaakov Weinstock, James Perkins, and Brad Franklin in a talk on alternative data and the API jungle. With alternative data becoming more and more popular in the industry, quants are eager to adopt them into their investment processes. However, with a plethora of options, API standards, trying and evaluating data sets is a major hindrance to adoption of data sets. Now on to Sri Krishnamurthy, the host of the show. Welcome everyone. This is Sri Krishnamurthy from Quant University. And I welcome you to the final session of the Quant University Falls Court guest lecture series. Today, we are fortunate to have Brad Franklin from Faxet, James Perkins from Refinitiv, and Jakob Weinstock, who's been uh, a great friend and a mentor and an advisor for a really long time. And in today's session, we're going to cover some of the, uh, the, the nice out there on like, what are these APIs? Like everyone's talking about alternative APIs. Everyone wants to use APIs uh, in their quantitative investment workflow. And uh, we have had so many discussions kind of discussing AI, machine learning, various ways in which you can incorporate modeling into your workflows. And in today's session, we'll talk about how do you operationalize some of these workflows within the enterprise? How do you think about bringing in the data and the modeling pieces together? And how do you leverage the ecosystem of different products and services which are out there and then bring them all together and operationalizing your workflows? As you know, when quants start building financial applications, you have to connect various pieces. You have the data piece, you have the modeling piece, you have to think about your ideas and what does it mean in the context of the portfolios and the ideas you're working on. How do you experiment with it? How do you wrap the prototype with all these aspects? And one of the things we are trying to do here at Quant University is try to see what are the, the latest trends which are out there and how can you bring them all together and make it available to reduce the friction within the enterprise when you're operationalizing these quant workflows. So today we'll start out with brief introductions on various uh, aspects about, you know, what does uh, API means uh, in the context of the, the workflows from a refinitive perspective, from, uh, you know, uh, Yako comes from a perspective of, you know, how does a CTO in an organization think about various data sources when you're making systems and processes available for Quants and investment managers. And then Brad's going to come from the perspective of you know, how Faxit is seeing the world in the context of uh, open APIs. So I'm going to share a couple of slides in here uh, for people who are attending the Quant University Fall School Lecture Series for the first time. Welcome. For people who have been uh, with us for, uh, for a long time, we have, uh, this is the 18th session of the year. Uh, welcome back. And I hope you've enjoyed the series and you've learned and also gotten a, a, a good idea of you know, the various innovations which are happening in the AI ML space, especially in the context of financial services. And uh, we hope today's session is gonna get you some more insights about what's the state of art with respect to APIs out there and how does alternative data and various other aspects fit into the enterprise. So for people who don't know us, uh, we are Quant University. We are based out of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, well, in today's day and age, I don't think geographical locations matter anymore, uh, but I welcome you. We have had people from uh, 13 different countries. Uh, we focus primarily on the intersection of data science, machine learning, and finance. Uh, we have uh, operated as a consultancy and a training advisory for the past seven years, and we have expanded into building out products. And I'm gonna give you a brief demo of the Q Sandbox which is powering the Q Academy when we run our courses. Uh, but in addition to that, we are creating a platform to bring in the data and the modeling pieces together to facilitate rapid experimentation. And I'd love to get um, your thoughts about what you think about the platform we are building and exchange some ideas. Uh, so this uh, fall, we had multiple courses we offered in partnership with Premier and multiple other organizations. We focused on operationalizing and scaling artificial intelligence within the financial services enterprise. We focused on various themes on uh, explainability, looking at synthetic data generation, uh, looking at FinTech and other aspects about operationalizing some of the, the key areas of, uh, uh, key areas and the challenges of bringing in machine learning within the enterprise. 
And we're also gearing up for the winter school in 2021, wherein we are going to be bringing out many more courses. And if you go to www.quantuniversity.com, uh, we have a brand new site and we have the whole course catalog and all the other uh, courses and the workshops we're going to be conducting in, um, uh, in January. And today, um, as I mentioned, uh, we have uh, James from Refinitiv, Brad from Factset, and Yakov, uh, who are going to be talking about the, the various aspects on how they see the whole area of alternative data uh, and the API general from their perspective. And um, uh, the reason why I want to put this together is as we were building out the key sandbox, we realized that when quants are kind of dealing with this new world wherein software is something which you can access anytime you want. You have open source products which are out there and you can just install and configure and start working with that. You have multiple data sources which you can potentially leverage and most of them are available now through APIs. Multiple companies are putting together their own APIs and uh, you have the challenge of bringing all these things together. And what it means like is, you know, if you are a chef and you're working with ingredients, you have to now start thinking in the context of recipes rather than sourcing these ingredients because the ingredients are all there. Now you have to start putting them together. And many a times your experiments may work well. Many a times you may have just to abandon these experiments and go on to new experiments. And that's where the, the Q sandbox comes in. And I'm gonna give you like a brief demo of the, of the sandbox just to kind of get you a feel for how the platform looks. Um, and then I'm going to um, just um, hand over the stage to James and uh, Yakov. So, uh, so this is the, the sandbox and what it does for you is enable you to bring in all the key pieces of the quantitative workflow uh, together. So when you think about what do quants and data scientists typically need in an enterprise, you have multiple APIs available and it could be from data vendors, it could be your own APIs. Uh, for example, we have created multiple APIs for uh, synthetic data generation, for de-identification, for re-identification, for masking and sharing different data sets. But also we have fine-tuned some algorithms for natural language processing, leveraging uh, different um, uh, call earning transcripts and also leveraging different APIs from Azure, um, Amazon, et cetera. And we also work closely with uh, companies like NVIDIA and MathWorks to leverage their products and technologies so that it's easily accessible in a single platform. And the key piece which we are trying to put all these things together is leveraging the API world. And what that means is you can have all these APIs kind of you know, put, you know, be in one place so that when you start building out your workflows, you can just basically pick the various pieces together and assemble them and start focusing on your use cases. As you know, every API has its own API signature and it just becomes a challenge to think about leveraging multiple APIs to build out the workflow and we kind of try to reduce the friction by having all of them in a single platform so that way you can focus on your idea generation and vetting out your ideas and operationalizing those ideas rather than the technical pieces of how do you think about the various uh, APIs and putting all of them together. And some of the things we have done is just uh, leveraging best practices of APIs. So we use uh, you know, standard API signatures so that we can basically look at the documentation and work with that. And you can test out various authorization parameters. And also we have put together various reference applications using technologies like Streamlit and other uh, technologies where you could just basically call these and then figure out how these applications work. And then if you like it, you could just basically integrate that into the workflow. So that's a brief demo of the QSandbox. If anybody is interested in uh, giving it a try or have questions, please reach out to us at info at qsandbox.com and I'll be happy to engage in the conversation. So uh, without further ado, let's invite our eminent panel for the day. Uh, welcome, James. Welcome, Yako. Welcome, Brad, to the, uh, today's session. Thank you. So um, what we'll do is uh, we will uh, have each one of you introduce yourselves and talk about uh, the the things which excite you in the API world and uh, what you've been working on. 
so that way we can kind of you know, set the stage for the audience on you know, the, you know, how do you see the world in the context of various APIs. And then we will start with the fireside chat and talk about the various themes about uh, how to put all these things together. Sound like a plan? Cool. Perfect. So uh, James, uh, would you want to go first? I'm going to make you the presenter sure. and uh, you can share your screen. And one thing you got to do is uh, once you finish your presentation, you may have to hand over the baton to me and make me the host so that we can uh, transfer the host privileges to others. Okay. So James, you are the presenter now, so you feel free to share the screen. Perfect. All right, let's see here. Are you able to see? Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, hello everyone. Um, first off, a big thank you um, to you three uh, for the opportunity to be here. Um, and, and really for the important work that you're doing with Quant University to empower and inform the wider Quant community. Um, I've spent most of my career connecting market practitioners with data um, and technology. And I can tell you that in recent years with the rise of things like machine learning and AI, um, developer advocacy, I would say, has increasingly become the focus of our efforts. Um, a little bit about Refinitiv, um, formerly part of Thomson Reuters, formed in 1851 um, to actually using carrier pigeons to relay stock quotes, if you can believe it. And you fast forward today, 170 years later, and here we are talking about data science uh, and we serve more than 40,000 institutions globally. So, um, you know, just a couple things that I wanted to share um, on how we're and how we look at the quant and developer community and really what we're doing to empower um, those communities, right? I think first and foremost, our developer community, Refinitiv developer community, it's a mature, global, uh, far-reaching community, right? With more than 40,000 uh, registered members at this point. We have a very active Q&A forums, uh, articles that you can down, uh, read and download, documentation, tutorials. It really is a hub of excellence for everything uh, APIs and developer related, right? Want to create a very good, I'll call it almost, almost like a playground, right? Where, and we do have a playground as well in there. So um, something where we want to make sure developers and quants feel welcome and supported. Secondly, we have the Refinitiv Data Platform, right? Which is our strategic cloud-based platform. And that's really where we house all of our data sets. So currently um, it's kind of staggering, but we have more than a hundred million different instruments that we price and provide um, pricing and reference data on. This is also where we store uh, news, ESG, um, any of our third party and um, partner data sets. Um, and then also we provide um, open source um, types of tools to access that, right? So something we just launched recently called Codebook is a cloud-based IDE, right? We basically created our own IDE optimized to help um, and enable uh, communities to really test that data set, right? Um, and, and as you mentioned, reduce the friction. Um, and then I think, you know, thirdly, really the other exciting thing that we're doing is we have built out the last few years of Refinitiv Labs, which is a group of dedicated uh, data scientists um, that create proofs of concept with customers, co-create, uh, we provide thought leadership. And in fact, um, from our recent uh, AI ML survey, I think you'll all be happy to, to hear, although probably not shocked, that 80% of the respondents from the survey that we reached out to say that they are making, quote, significant investments in AI ML technologies. Like I said, not a huge surprise um, there, but if you wanna see the full report, I definitely welcome you to go to the, to the site and uh, download it for free. So, um, you know, with that, that's really all I had is those three points. I think uh, with our developer community, our data platform and our labs, those are really the three things that we're doing, I think, our buckets, I would say, uh, where we're trying to move the needle and, and help support um, the communities that you're also trying to support. So I really appreciate the, the time and um, I will pass it over to, I guess, Brad or Yakov. Uh, hi, um, uh, thanks, thanks, James. This was this was excellent. Um, so let, let's, uh, Brad. Do you want to go next? Sure. Um, so I'm gonna see if we can. Um, I'm gonna make you the presenter, Brad. Okay, so you can share your screen. You guys can see my screen? Yes. 
Yeah, you can see them. Great. Hi, my name is Brad Franklin, and I lead our product strategy effort for our content API suite at Faxet. Um, our goal in the content API suite is really to build a modern, performant API interface into all the content that we collect, the content that we aggregate and enhance, as well as the content that we bring in and integrate through our partnerships, and really make that available in, in, a, in a modern API suite. And, and the content API is, is really one element of our, our FactSet's whole API picture. And, and that includes certainly our analytics, so portfolio analytics, performance, risk analytics, as well as all the utilities and the engines that support the workflow from ideation to research to, to portfolio construction and then evaluation. And so I work very closely with um, certainly the product and the engineering teams on our content, but as well as uh, you know, the teams that focus on those analytics and enhancements on top of the research and the portfolios that go into the construction process. And so, you know, we, we look at this as a holistic, really suite of APIs that help you meet whatever workflow you're looking to integrate and to really enhance through that digital strategy. So in addition to the endpoints, um, we have a variety of tools and resources to help clients understand what API solutions we offer, um, how they can utilize those in various workflows, and, and then tools to get up and running. And so at developer.faxa.com, this is where our catalog of APIs are hosted. And you can identify either by content type or use case or asset class, what APIs we offer. Um, and then if you go into the API parts, you can explore live documentation, look at request response models, and then do a lot of testing and understanding what the API can do and how that fits into a workflow. Some examples of that are we created Jupyter Notebooks as starter kits to help accelerate onboarding. We see a lot of clients utilizing notebooks as primary initial environments to explore and understand what a content set can do. Um, but depending on the API, it may be BI tools or maybe other SDKs or integrations that are going to be relevant for that workflow. And so what we really want to do is meet the clients where they are, make sure that we're creating an interface that's very easy to integrate into that environment and use that really industry standards um, and open API standards to make sure that um, the API documentation and the integration process is very easy. And um, so our goals continue to really expand out this content offering. We're closely with the market um, to make sure that clients are able to get access to, to this data and to these analytics and functionality in, in a highly performant uh, Street, I guess I can turn it back over to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Brad. That was an excellent uh, orientation. And uh, um, I'm very curious to kind of try out the, the Jupyter Notebook starter kits, uh, potentially leverage some of those. Um, so Yaakov, I'll make you the presenter in a second. So, Jakob and I, uh, we did some work together more than 10 years ago. And since then I've been, we've been tracking each other, I guess. And I've been seeing, you know, Jakob kind of do amazing things. And he's also very actively involved with the New York CFA Society. And he recently did the panel and uh, we reconnected and we've been exchanging ideas since then. And uh, he, has, he has some amazing thoughts about how um, he had kind of, you know, seen the whole ecosystem grow within an organization when you are, kind of building out the technology and the infrastructure platform within an organization, leveraging all these resources. So Yako, please uh, uh, you know, share your thoughts. Uh, am I the presenter? Yes. Uh, all right, perfect. So. Okay. No, are you able to see my screen? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, so Sri and I definitely go way back. Uh, we worked on a lot of very interesting projects in, early on in our career. Um, so I started out as a developer, uh, and I must say I'm always happy to um, uh, hear about uh, developer advocacy programs and API strategies, um, especially from you guys at Refinitive and FactSet. Um, I recall early in my career having to reverse engineer and break part platforms, just so I can get at the data and programmatically connect um, and probably uh, breach a lot of uh, license agreements at the same time. But, um, you know, things have come a long way. And um, I, I thought I'd give a little bit of a, 
uh, you know, a, a view from the other side um, in terms of actually integrating with and um, pulling in and getting value from, um, we'll call it the alternative data space or in general integration of information. Um, so at Fiera, most recently I was the CTO at Fiera Capital and Fiera had a large uh, municipal investment book. And what um, we thought was, um, how can we go ahead and uh, combine or marry publicly available information with internal research models um, and information generated internally uh, to arrive at or to add to our, we'll call it the mosaic of our investment process. And so, um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of publicly available information out there. Um, one can consider what, what I have presented here, information that can actually pull down, be pulled down in a structured way. But there was also a lot of web scraping that had to occur uh, in order to get this done. Um, but the real uh, the place that we started was about, um, you know, it was about the concept of architecture. And uh, we knew, first of all, that, that there was a sound thesis around what we were trying to accomplish because there was a lot of effort done to do this manually. And, you know, talent in that regard is critical. Um, and and doing, doing these types of initiatives based off of a sound thesis in general is always a good, a good uh, start. Um, but architecture was critical for us as well because we knew that uh, by the very nature of what we were trying to accomplish, there had to have been a, um, uh, we'll call it an exploratory culture and environment uh, to be able to find new data sets and integrate it quickly uh, with, uh, you know, exploration and discovery is key. Um, and so how do we go ahead and rapidly ingest new data sets, um, clean, normalize it, et cetera, uh, without being hindered by uh, operational overhead um, for the infrastructure infrastructure that runs the data pipelines. And so um, we, you know, the one thing also that we were very uh, um, uh, cognizant of is the fact that uh, in general, if we wanted to start, you know, this the municipal investment space was a place where we can, uh, we were able to tiptoe into this environment, but we wanted to apply it to the other environments and the other asset classes that we had. Um, and, uh, you know, Quandle, the, there was a blog post of Quandle back, I had to remember where to find this and I found it, I was happy I did, um, uh, with this uh, concept of how do you search for, for uh, edge with alternative data? And they had this graphic, which you can see, and they have this concept of diffusion of, of, of the information. And that is, um, as alternative data gets presented and is, and is available, uh, the more people, this is a really, you know, easy concept to understand, the more it's um, available, the more people take advantage of it, the less um, alpha it actually generates, right? It becomes part of the price, built into the price and table stakes. Um, and so, you know, how do you, the concept of speed um, to not only discover, but also use the information uh, was very critical um, in, in building out a good program. And so the goal that we set out to do is how do you build end-to-end um, -end data pipelines that are easy, what we call easily, easy, easy, frictionless and self-service. Um, and uh, the approach was we wanted to create an architecture that uh, eventually, that essentially was layered, was component-oriented. Um, it created, a, a decoupled the, the concerns. This is all sound architectural practice, but um, you know, people jump in and think that they just pull information in and drop it into a database and hope for the best, that's not gonna cut it in, in a, um, an environment that has to be nimble and agile. And luckily for everybody, um, the uh, public cloud providers um, have actually solved architecture for you. And I'm not sure why people don't use this more, but um, you know, the, a lot of the, uh, both, all, all of the public cloud providers, GCP, AWS, um, uh, Azure, they create, these best practices for architecture that you can copy, modify, use on your own. And they're all generally in lockstep and approach. Um, the separation you generally wanna have is around the load because the load um, will shift and change based on the information you have. The storage, which has to go ahead and um, you know, horizontally scale uh, based off of the amount of information you put in. The processing, which will change depending on what you do and how your firm involves. And also the distribution of your of your information, because the key is how do you how do you actually exploit this? And that's 
when we architected this, it was, um, uh, you know, we, we had a, a store and process, it was the name of architecture, but uh, consume was our load and exploit was just was was what we considered the distribute part and that's really what what that layer is supposed to do is you so you have it how do you exploit it and in order to exploit it you have to put it in the hands of the right people at the right time and so um architecture yes talent is great but um architecture is definitely critical i happen to be just between uh, you uh, everyone here even though we were an azure shop at um at, at uh, fiera i happen to be like uh, what aws has to offer um aws uh, is the only one that actually added this governance and security layer on top of what they were putting out there which is you should build um almost immediately uh you should have a program up front when you're designing this and then their full with AWS also their full architecture is based off of a serverless approach, which allows for um, you know it's easy it improves the time to market and also really optimizes the return on investment uh, because the pay for what you use is is very granular um, when you come when it comes to serverless. But um, either one of these is great. Um, you can also just copy this and build it internally. Use this reference architecture and just replace. Whatever your uh, you know platforms you are in your own data center, um, uh, but this is the right this is the right approach to to go in an architecture environment. Okay, cool. So thanks so much, Yakov. This was this was an excellent uh, orientation. So um, now uh, let's get into the the fire fireside chat mode. And I uh, even found a virtual background to simulate a fireside chat. Um, so uh, I, um, uh, I'm very curious about you know the whole notion of you know how is the API world evolving? Because when I kind of started building APIs you know many many years ago, you know it was more of a technical value proposition basically thinking about you know kind of putting together the frameworks putting together the apis to kind of you know uh, discuss like how do you interface it and it was mostly thought about from a connection perspective there was no real strategy and you were basically trying to use api as a bridge to kind of you know build the gap but now any service i'm looking at has an api offer you know when you're thinking about machine learning there's machine learning as a service Data, data as a service. So every service is now kind of offering an API-based interface. Now, how is how are you looking at you know the whole world in the context of access? You know, when we're thinking about building out all these APIs. Uh, so let's start from there, and then we can continue the discussion. Uh, we're trying to make it easier. <laughs> I think that's the uh, you know the short end of it. And Brad will probably agree, right? I mean, it's obviously in everyone's best interest to try to um, reduce the friction. And I think in the era of open APIs, you kind of have to embrace the openness, right? I mean, there's no reason to do as many proprietary technology things anymore, right? So I'd say, you know, the two most popular APIs that were deliveries anyway, right now that we're seeing are, you know, WebSocket and REST. I mean, REST APIs, WebSocket, um, these are all open, um, you know, protocols, and um, I think that's just what what clients expect, right? Um, they want that openness, especially with. So there was a question on cloud too. I don't know if we're going to get to that, but um, you know, that's where the cloud, that's where our current our customers are going, right? They want data in AWS. They want to be able to pull things down from GCP or Azure, um, and so we need to kind of go into that mentality. This is a little bit beyond the scope of this conversation per se, but I don't know how many of you follow, for example, Finos, right? But there is real a race just in general to embrace open technology and open connectivity and breaking down barriers, right? So I think APIs is just one more in that series of evolution, right? Just making it easy, adapting what's already there and, and um, you know, making it super easy for customers. Perfect. So Brad, you wanna add something to that? Yeah, I mean, the, the proliferation of really the open standards has reduced friction on, on really getting access to the data. Um, certainly performance makes it possible to do a lot of things from a workflow perspective with APIs that maybe five years ago weren't. Um, but yeah, we, we, and we see where you used to have to have um, 
you know, installs or SDKs or particular specific integrations, depending on your environment, that's no longer necessary. And it really reduces the cost of ownership on the development side to be able to integrate this data and then connect it up with your own, you know, your own environment um, and, and bridge the gaps that used to exist across content sets. And I think that's, a, that's another thing that, you know, a data set's not that powerful if you can't connect it and, and be able to integrate it be able to study it in, in the holistic view of like what other information you need um, in order to, to, to build off that research question. And so um, it's easier to do that now. And I think APIs have really offered the ability to clients get up and running very quickly too. Um, you know, there's certainly, you know, you look at the infrastructure costs that, that may be involved with, you know, procuring SQL environments and creating, you know, batch load processes and building all that out. Um, there's, you know, there's an investment upfront on that and, and also, you know, operational costs. And I think you can answer a lot of questions more through APIs these days. Yeah, thanks, Brett. So Yako, uh, thanks for the, the slides you put together. Um, the Amazon story is amazing for me too, because you know, first of all, the sandbox which I demonstrated, uh, it's primarily running on the AWS ecosystem. So we are leveraging a lot of uh, the single sign-on features and you know, leveraging serverless functions to basically look at uh, both authentication and authorization and you know, provisioning various keys, permissioning and some of the governance related aspects. Uh, to be frank, you know, uh, it, it would have taken me you know, hundreds of developers to build out these kinds of architectures, you know, even five years ago. And today it's just like componentizing and just putting, putting together and you have a whole workflow. And in fact, I actually, uh, I'm teaching a class at Northeastern University and there was a, a, a class on building out production pipelines and we had students build it out. And within a, a quick one to two week uh, period, they were able to crank out these amazing architectures and they were all production quality and they were scalable and they were readily usable. And uh, it basically had all the features which you did not have to reinvent the wheel and start from scratch. So. Um, the question for you is like, you know, how is, you know, when you, when you were working for your capital and other places, like, do you think that that's the way the world is going, wherein we are just going to be like taking components and putting things together and creating these workflows and leveraging APIs as needed? And uh, if so, you know, where will we be in like, you know, three to four years and how will we be building applications? Yeah, so the evolution of the cloud is an it's an amazing story, right? And it's really just, it comes down to this um, concept of relentlessly pushing what doesn't add value away from you, right? And, um, you know, the cloud, all the AWS was the first guy there, right? It starts out as uh, the ability to not have to manage your own infrastructure, right? And it was a cost play almost. That's how people were looking at it. Um, then all of a sudden it became this concept of being able to punch above your weight class, right? You have these new entrants coming in similar to what you said, right? Instead of having to build out massive engineering teams, they can turn things on um, and compete and be at their level, have an enterprise level environment that was similar to these larger incumbents. Um, that move of uh, continuously pushing the value away, the, the, the commoditized items away from you is where things are today. And you can see this always with Amazon deploying new services, new services, new services. And um, it really plays into this API concept and culture. It's this the fact that you should never be reinventing the wheel, right? You know, back in the day when I started as a developer, uh, you know, this, this is all common sense, right? But when I started as a developer, it was, you know, how, you know, how do I go ahead and show off my Perl skills um, mm -hmm. to, to develop something that, you know, I know there's a library out there, but I want to do my own. Right. And it evolved to, you know, um, interview questions such as uh, what do you do if you don't know, you know, how to do something? You want to hear people say, I will Google it or I will go on Stack Exchange because it doesn't pay for me to figure this out on my own. Someone else probably had the same problem. Right. You think you need people to work smart, not hard. Um, that's the, that is the value of, of, the, of the public cloud. It's, it's being able to work smart. Right, it's to constantly be able to leverage pre-existing work that someone else did in order to prop up your ability to just develop and deploy value. Um, there was an article today, so speaking about where things are going, right? And this there was an article today about Goldman's 
Goldman Sachs, at least I read it today, I don't know if it was posted today, but um, Goldman Sachs, this concept of banking as a service, right? And how they told, they understood, they, they, they re-architected the whole environment from the ground up, is the fact that they have to provide, you know, uh, uh, programmatic uh, integration and access to banking, to their banking, to their, their liquidity or cash, whatever you want to call it, cash management, it's got different names, um, so that people can plug and play for things that they want, regardless of what environment it is. That's the API concept. It's, you know, how can I use, and especially with the serverless with AWS, how can I use this strength from AWS deploy things in Lambda and then deploy, connect into banking from Goldman and connect into, you know, the, I don't know, whatever, into somewhere else to come together to create this platform for myself based off of what the, the services that I need. Um, that's that's where I mean that is where things are and where things are going. It's the ability for people to pick and choose because there's programmatic and easy integration into everything, right? That's what's you know it's table stakes. People have to be companies have to provide programmatic access. Whereas when I started, it was just it was nice when I was there, but like I said, I had to reverse engineer a lot of platforms just to integrate programmatically into them. Um, I'm not going to name what they are because I don't want them to come after me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely, that, that's that's a fascinating point, right? Uh, the and that this is an example I give to my students too. You know, five years ago, if you were able to write a Jupyter notebook, um, you know, you would be considered as a data scientist, and students would get amazing jobs. And today, we are talking about all these concepts of you know building out serverless computing, the ability to integrate various APIs, the whole revolution of you know the citizen data scientist, if you will people being able to use uh, plug and play machine learning systems and different kinds of uh, data and uh, you know, uh, services and putting together amazing workflows. You know, the whole notion of natural language processing, which was, uh, it's still in its uh, infancy, I would say, but it's much more mature than what it was like a few years ago, where you could just basically, anybody can now think about sentiment analysis as, oh, I can just plug a couple of different points and then I have a service available. And summarization, leveraging text as you know, as uh, as an edge in terms of you know, you doing the analysis. So all those, you know, the way I kind of you know use using some technical terms, you know, the abstraction was there before. Now you have the encapsulation. You know, you are basically encapsulating all these you know difficult to use concepts and then providing interfaces, which is making it available to a whole new world of uh, you know uh, programmers analysts who may not have been able to develop those kinds of systems on their own within their enterprises. And now you basically have these available. So a question for you know, Brad and James, you know, in the past when I was looking at financial services data sets, I was primarily looking at data as well, I need my global data, I need my you know, country specific data, I need my factor data, I need my industry data. And I would go in and basically filter and bring it in. But when I was kind of evaluating some of the, the various things. And you know, on the sandbox, we basically provision data from you know, FactSet, from Moody's, from S&P. We're trying out to integrate all these various uh, components. And the one fascinating thing that I found was access to so many machine learning as a service APIs is so simple. And many of these sentiment analysis models, many of these models which leverage alternative data sets and bringing out the geospatial aspects of it, leveraging contextual information, especially in today's day of COVID, wherein you are requiring immediate access to certain bits of information. It's also simple nowadays. So from a strategy perspective, where are you seeing the world going? You know, is it more of you know, quants basically saying, well, I don't have to build things from scratch. Let me leverage the sentiment analysis API and just integrate it with my application. Or do you still think that you know it's the diversity and the variety of different data sets being made available to the clients, which is going to be interesting uh, for the industry involved? Well, I mean, I guess one thing I would say first off, I, I just to kind of echo Yakov's statement, right? Um, nobody wants to reinvent the wheel anymore, mm -hmm. right? I think we all want to just uh, it's it's not efficient, right? So there is that mentality already, I think, in the ethos, right? Let's just use what's out there and repurpose it as we can. But um, let's not beat around the bush here. I mean, I think the, the analysis almost at this point 
I want to, I don't want to say it's, it's free or it's table stakes, but you, you made it, you made it clear, right? Anyone can do a machine learning model now, right? That we have, that's open source. That's available. You can pull that off the shelf and you can apply that to any data set, right? But that the ex analysis doesn't make as much of an impact if you don't have the right data sets, right? And of course, I mean, it's in our tagline at Refinitiv, I'm not unbiased here, right? We say data is just the beginning, but you have to have quality data sets to actually be able to derive meaningful insights. Um, and when we talk in the context of alternative data, a couple um, little nuances that some people don't think about, right? Is that first off, nobody's gonna derive alpha from a single all data set by itself. It, it has to be done in conjunction with something else, right? You have to put context around it. So. Um, you know, one data set's not going to be the magic bullet here, right? Maybe in connection with a few other data sets from different sources, but there's got to be some way to contextualize it. Secondly, there's got to be the data history there, right? You can't do a meaningful machine learning model if you don't have hundreds or ideally thousands of data points to support that, right? So um, just because you have a nuanced data set that maybe you have a year's worth of history on, uh, may or may not actually be that impactful. So I mean, from our perspective at Refinitiv, we're, we're banking a lot on the quality of data, right? The fact that you, you do need to have um, data that people trust, right? That uh, there's quality control around, um, and that's accurate. So a lot of what we do is around that workflow and starting with the data and then saying, okay, all these are the great tools that we have and technologies and techniques we can apply to that. But if you don't have the, the foundation there, I think uh, maybe you won't get the outcome that you really want. Brad, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, the connectivity is huge. I mean, that's where um, we, so we started Open Facts at Marketplace, which really connects a lot of this alternative data and brings it into a singular platform. And the main challenge we were seeing in the quant space was you might have access to some unique content or maybe some, some textual data that you have the ability to then create scores or something off of, and you want to integrate that into your system. Being able to do that efficiently and accurately throughout time and connect that back up with your security model is very difficult. And there's quite a bit of work that goes into really the symbology and the entity mappings behind that. And so we created a platform to really integrate that data and, and bring that all into a single, really cohesive environment and a, and a delivery tool. And I think that's really helped um, be able to connect the fundamental and foundational data that you need to be and then expand that out to the alternative. Because um, you know, as James mentioned, that data set on its own is, is not that valuable. Like you need to connect that back up, and, um, and so I think you know that's that's a that's a big theme we're seeing, and and really in the trends, like there's a lot of buzz around alternative data, and, and there's a whole different um, you know there's a whole lot of variety in the types of alternative data you can focus on. Um, and Yakov, your chart illustrated it beautifully. I mean, if you can get into that nascent category and you can find some data that has some edge and it's not diffused yet. And you have the ability technically to implement that. that I mean, that's a gold mine. That's where you want to be. But what we're seeing really is, um, you know, there's a lot more, uh, a lot more capability, demand, and and, and really interest in, in the diffused portion of that spectrum because there, there's, um, there's still a lot of value to be had. There's still potential alpha within that space, um, but there's much more capability to be able to integrate that and and, and also proven, um, somewhat proven results. Absolutely, and I, I think that that's. Uh, I, I also wanted to follow up on that, Yaka, because uh, I think this is something we have talked about multiple times, right? You know, the whole notion of rapid prototyping and figuring out what's like the life cycle of a data set and when does the decay start kicking in, and how do you make sure that you are leveraging the information which is going to be contextual and relevant to what your analysis is, and um, when do you start kind of exploring new and alternative aspects of that particular data set. And um, I'm kind of thinking about like, how will the, the day of a quant evolve when everybody has access to all this information? And uh, the question would be, you don't have tried and tested methods you're just gonna replicate and you wanna kind of differentiate yourselves. And now you're not just working in, you know, the really large firms and the few of them which have all the technology and uh, ecosystems, you have hundreds and thousands of fintechs coming in, geographical barriers are no longer preventing others from kind of, you know, leveraging these opportunities. So how will the life of a quant evolve with all these aspects? And how do you see, you know, uh, uh, the ecosystem grow in terms of being able to build out, you know, rapidly evolving use cases and then operationalizing them? 
Yeah. So, um, am I mute now? Okay. So the first, the first thing is, um, I do want to comment on the concept of quality data, right? Um, so I heard an analogy where it says like data, data is not like it's not like items at a garage sale, right? Where one person's trash is another person's treasure. It's not how it works, right? Data is objectively good or bad, right? Um, but it's applicability, right? How it's applied is where it's subjective and it's based off of the individual circumstances and needs of the organization. That's again, a concept of, you know, co uh, commodity versus not commodity, right? If the it's what makes things different is what you do with the information, not necessarily the information itself. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just, on the right side of the spectrum of that graph, right? Though that when it becomes fully diffused, um, what's actually happening there is that it becomes commonplace, right? It becomes table stakes. And it's not like you can stop doing those things because everyone will be doing it, right? When it's democratized and et cetera, and it's built into the price, you're not, it's not like you're gonna say, oh, the fundamental data is diffused. I'm no longer gonna look at fundamental data, right? Or at prices, or, right? Um, as things shift, that just becomes part of your table stakes model. Everyone's doing it and you need to do it. Otherwise, you, you're at an information disadvantage. Um, but the problem is, right, these, uh, for, the, for the information that's not democratized, that's where the edge is. But, you know, a lot of the firms just can't compete in order to get that information, right? And the, and the age old, the example that's published out there is um, uh, when Johnson & Johnson acquired, um, uh, was it Actelian, I think was the name of the, of the firm. And there were three funds, I think it was um, Elliott and um, it was Elliot Oxif and Eden Park that uh, uh, basically predicted the the acquisition. But the way they did it was they started tracking flight data of the Johnson and Johnson private jets, um, and, and they, they you know they were able to deduce that the location of where those private jets were going, right? What the closest place was Italian, uh, and that's and that's most likely why they were going to acquire that firm, and then they were able, they basically made a ton of money on it. So the question- the Mosaic theory in the CFA curriculum, right? What was that? The mosaic theory in the CFA curriculum. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's not insider, right? It's, the, it's just, it's proving, you know, um, your theory, right? Um, but, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that there are firms that value information that no one else has, right? And are willing to pay for it. And as soon as other people have it, they are no longer gonna value it and they'll move on to something else. And, you know, the question that you need to ask yourself is, are you able to compete with them, <laughs> right? And, you know, if, if not, then where, where's the value gonna come from, right? There's still a ton of value in, in regular fundamental analysis and in utilizing the information that, that you could get from a dem, dem, you know, from the, we'll call the democratic you know, availability of information. But if you're looking for alternative data to be a true kind of like differentiator and predictive predictor of, of what you're trying to, you know, of alpha, mm -hmm. um, the guys that actually ha are, have the capital and the wherewithal to acquire that information only do so what, because that information is not available to anybody else, right? And they're willing to pay a premium for that. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, in, it's, a, it's a very interesting um, uh, situation, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I think we have another eight minutes and I wanna ask about two things. And the first thing is about this whole notion of marketplace. I got, I got pinged by someone recently and um, uh, this person said that, you know, I've been collecting you know, a particular kind of data set uh, for the past three years. And that particular data set is no longer accessible anywhere else. And I'm the only sole uh, source and uh, I, I, I'm the only person who has this data and I'm looking for a platform through which I can make that available and would you want to partner and this person is international would you want to partner with us and then I was kind of looking at like this whole notion of API and marketplaces wherein people are actually leveraging their you know uh, specific access or you know like what Yaka you were mentioning you know, potentially leveraging some 
intelligence on, okay, I can potentially leverage geospatial information and then mash it up with some other data set and create an alternative data set, which provides some uh, amount of information. And if you look at it, well, can you do it? Probably, but I'm gonna require hundreds of thousands of dollars to put together the ecosystem of the, the infrastructure and build the whole thing and as well like buy it or source it from somewhere else rather than me generating. So how do you see this notion of marketplaces, uh, Brad and James? Um, uh, are your companies thinking about partnering with other organizations to bring in their data sets and APIs to your ecosystem so that you become the channel of delivery to their end users or you're kind of uh, seeding those efforts in within your organization or is that an area of growth within your organizations? How are you kind of seeing this whole notion of marketplaces within your organization? Yeah, we've um, we've seen a lot of interest in data providers to, to really partner to be able to distribute their content and do that and, and access scale. Um, and so that, that's a big part of the open access marketplace is we, we really open up our entity and security master to be able to concord data into, you know, into a highly performant and scalable delivery um, with the foundations that might be difficult to achieve for a data provider that has a single data set, is there some value to it, but um, doesn't have necessarily scale or the QA or the backend or the infrastructure to distribute that. And so, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a partnership we've seen a ton of growth in. So we have a lot of alternative data providers that really fit that exact kind of model. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we continue to expand that. I think the, the interesting thing is like, which, you know, the, the themes change over time. So, I mean, even in the last couple of years, like we've seen, you mentioned geospatial, I mean, certainly sentiment has this theme. There's, I mean, we're seeing a lot of interest in ESG related content sets now. So there's, there's a whole host of different providers that have interesting data that, that fits that workflow and they're looking for a place to, to really distribute that and to market it. You know, I, see, I see the marketplace, um, it's not a unique concept necessarily to facts. I mean, it's, it's growing really everywhere. And I think it's, it's really awesome to be able to see that type of access offered to the data, set, data, data providers that, that really need that scale. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I'm not necessarily sure that we have adopted a marketplace model as much, but we, let's say as specific to alt data, right? We, we do have a pretty robust partnership with Battlefin, right? Where we provide data to them. They, they've onboard uh, their data sets from their marketplace onto ours. And of course, um, we're always trying to develop new data sets ourselves, right? And, and then of course, uh, yeah, I mean, if there is something compelling, we will absolutely uh, step in and, and try to partner with, partner with them or um, where if it makes sense, acquire. I mean, I think there's, there's an open dialogue there, right? Um, going back to the data, that's, I think we, all, all roads lead back to the data first, right? You get the good data and then you can develop the analysis. So um, I think we're looking at all angles. I, I don't know that we look at it as much of the marketplace. I think the strategic view that we have is that we have a massive platform and we want to onboard as many different content sets as we can and make those available. Um, but again, I, I don't think we're thinking about it necessarily as a marketplace per se, but more of uh, a platform that would enable that. And maybe, maybe it's semantics, right? But um, yeah, so that's, I think that's how we're, we're generally look, looking at it. And the, and the second follow-on question, uh, and uh, potentially, you know, you could also chime in on how you think about this problem is this whole notion of when you think about governments or any data-driven applications. So you have to factor in not only the, the models, but you also have to think about the versioning of the data. You know, this particular data was available at that particular point in time, and I used it for building out this model, but then maybe the numbers, or the real numbers came out, or what we thought was the real numbers were no longer real numbers. So I had to kind of you know change my model there's a lot of governance related talk about, especially when you're thinking about connecting different APIs or connecting different data sets and building up things. And uh, I think there was a question on the online forum too about potentially leveraging tools like uh, or platforms like Snowflake to facilitate not only like the sharing of the data, but also on a two way kind of a thing where you could potentially say, okay, here's my snapshot and I'm gonna you know, put it out somewhere, version it and use it for governance. So are you seeing those kinds of use cases increase? Like, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, firms kind of leverage Snowflake as a, as a mechanism for delivery. 
Um, so any comments or thoughts about that? Yeah, the, we see a ton of demand for that type of distribution. I mean, Snowflake, um, we have a partnership with Snowflake and we see a ton of interest in clients being able to access data through the platform because um, there's multiple cloud providers, be able to integrate that in a single place and then have necessarily, like you mentioned, copies of the data, especially as the data changes. Um, that's really important from a research perspective, be able to represent what your, you know, what your research question was at the beginning, what data was utilized in that, but then be able to integrate the new content and accurately identify which applies. And so I think that that's definitely something that we're, we're seeing as a unique feature within, um, you know, within Snowflake or that type of provider. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a trend that we're seeing. Yeah, I think it's the same on our end. And I just echo what, what Brad says, right? I mean, we're working with Snowflake as well. And I think um, it's something that customers want and we have to respond to, right? So um, it's, well, it'll be interesting to see where it evolves to. But, but clearly, um, you know, there's a lot more that needs to be done um, to make sure that we're providing the best um, possibilities for customers, I guess. Jacob, have you, have you looked at... Uh... Uh, those kinds of uh, systems on your end when you were managing uh, data sets internally? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll comment on Snowflake. So Snowflake is, um, again, it's the, the, the value there is similar to what the cloud providers in general were offering, right? It's, you know, what they did was they um, separated um, com compute from storage, completely separated so they can scale independently. Um, and so it's where, you know, giving you performance, performance where you need it, when you need it, um, as well as not tying your storage to, your, to the performance that you need um, at, a more, at a very granular level. Um, at least that's, that's how I understood it. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's become very, 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 very interesting proposition because a lot of firms are using, a lot of platforms as, you know, as James and Brad mentioned, are using it as, kind of, you know, their jumping off point for, for, for what they can provide to other people. And so um, uh, it's interesting to see where it is. I did not get the, I, I have not had the opportunity to, to play with Snowflake. I do know my brother actually is. Um, he works at a trucking logistics company and they're using Snowflake right now to manage their full um, uh, national uh, fleet, um, which, is, which is a very, you know, deterring business intelligence about of Snowflake for the full national fleet. So he's very happy and successful with it. Um, but again, I have not tried it <laughs> as of yet. Um, you know, what's interesting from a platform perspective and what, you know, uh, uh, Jim and Brad were, were uh, talking about Refinitive and, and FactSet is the fact that, you know, going back to the, the diffusing and the fully diffused data sets, uh, being able to just have a, an environment where you can do the exploration right, um, easily connect to and do the exploration across um, uh, multiple data sets is something that, that firms, um, you know, they, they, they previously struggled with, right? And that's the in integration with multiple data sets at any given point in time that they, they need it. And the larger these platforms, the larger the, you know, uh, the offerings of these platforms, the better it is for the users of the platforms, right? And so, and you know, not to put down the constant diffusing or diffusing data. That's those that data um, people still struggle with, right? Fundamental data, getting accurate fundamental data, people still struggle with it, right? And so, um, being able to provide you know the the, the specific the overlay of the specific circumstance of the firm on top of trusted. Um, and available information is is definitely a, a good thing for the marketplace. So. Absolutely, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we are building out the, the Q sandbox, Jakob. Uh, kind of you know, trying to bring all the key aspects about the compute, the storage, and also the access to various APIs in a sandbox environment where you could prototype and rapidly deploy applications. So it's 102 and uh, we got to call it uh, the end of the year. And I uh, would like to acknowledge and thank all the speakers who facilitated both the summer and the fall school. Uh, this year is very different compared to other years. With COVID-19, we're all stuck at our homes. You know, uh, I have my virtual background and my virtual fireplace, depending on the mood and the thing I can keep changing the environment. 
and you're all kind of, you know, as uh, we were discussing that you're in Chicago, Yaka, you're in New York, James, you're in Charlotte, I'm based in Boston. Um, so one of the, the disadvantages of uh, not being able to meet has been um, um, because of Zoom and other technologies, we've been able to make these kinds of forums feasible. Education has been democratized, the knowledge and access to various platforms have been democratized, and the cloud and other technologies have made it easier to access various technologies. But I still look forward to you know, having those in-person meetings, and I look forward to uh, uh, a better 2021 where we can continue meeting in person and have these discussions. I uh, thank again all the speakers and the audience members who've been dialing in every week to engage in this uh, discussion and also to make uh, knowledge and uh, uh, the information available to everyone in the world. Uh, I acknowledge again uh, the support of Premier and other partners who have made these series of workshops uh, possible. And we hope to continue this journey again in 2021. And with the Winter School, we're going to be uh, introducing many more speakers as we continue the discussion online. Uh, thank you so much again for taking your afternoon and spending with us. And I look forward to continuing the discussion online. Thank you, Akar. Thank you, uh, Brad. And thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you all. And happy holidays. You too. And take, take care. care. Thank you for joining us for today's session of the Q Podcast Show. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit us at quantuniversity.com for upcoming events, courses, and to continue the discussion.